technologist, leader, efficiency-driven, and driver of change. These are just some of the words I pulled from my conversation with Winthrop Wealth CEO, Max Winthrop, as we discussed the wealth management industry and how firms can run more efficiently while leveraging technology. Max lives by three main principles, passion, focus, and execution. And each of these shows in the firm that he now heads up and the innovative focus they have in regards to creating an extremely efficient firm that delivers above and beyond value to clients and is leading the way in regards to how they're using technology to both of these. With over $1 billion in AUM, Max and his firm are a poster child for efficiency and growth. And we're lucky enough to have him on Bridging the Gap today to share some of his insights with all of us. This is Bridging the Gap with your host, Matt Reiner. All right, Max. Matt, thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for taking some time. How, uh, Boston, uh, so is it still the dead of winter up there here, or uh, are you all starting to see some spring come through? Well, the sun is shining today, but uh, we've had a spell of cold weather and our first major snowstorm uh, this winter, I, I could say. So we, we didn't get eight feet like we did in 2015. So we're, we're still happy and operational over here. Yeah, but the snow's not anything uh, you're kind of, you're scared of, given that uh, your past of being a ski racer and and doing that for some time. So tell us a little bit about that. That was uh, really interesting that we were talking about before the conversation. Yeah, no, thank you. So I grew up skiing. I actually walked at, I think, seven and a half months. And my parents had me on skis immediately. And it's sort of inculcated and ingrained in my family culture. So we've always been skiers. And I raced, um, I had the good fortune to race around the world. I raced through high school and college and got to experience many different cultures. Uh, and it's actually a tight, tightly knit network. So I uh, still stay in touch with many of the skiers. And hopefully it's something that I can carry into the retirement years. Although that's pretty far off at this point. Right. Enjoy it right now as your kind of uh, time away from the office to be able to continue to go and do that and have and, and have the ability to. Um, and now you, so you are a, uh, a dual citizen of Sweden and the States, right? So did you grow, how many, how many, did you spend, how many years in Sweden were you there? So I actually never formally lived there. Okay. Uh, my mother grew up there and then moved to the United States in the eighties when she met my father, but she raised us, uh, half Swedish, I should say. Um, that was always the focus. You know, I know I'm, I'm American, but we never really came to understand the other roots. Um, I think there's a bit of German and Polish and Irish, uh, but we were raised in a Swedish household and, and we had au pairs. So we learned the language, we learned to read and write, and we have a massive family over there. Uh, so we go and we visit probably once a year. Um, and I always have to catch up on uh, new, new terminology and uh, expressions. That's always the challenge. Uh-huh. So I don't know if I could have this conversation. I could have a high-level conversation in Swedish about technology and RIAs, but um, not at this level. Yeah, well, good thing that I don't know how to speak uh, another language right now. So uh, you're, you're in good hands to only have to speak English right now, which will be, make this uh, uh, really interesting. We'll stick to that. Uh, yeah. Well, let's let's dive into it because I'm really, um, you know, we've had a few conversations, and I've, I, I've, you know, in our short period of time of knowing each other, I've grown to really be impressed by what you've uh, helped build uh, with Winthrop and and your focus on innovation. And so, just to kick things off, to kind of give you a softball, why don't you just tell us a little bit about 
Winthrop Wealth, uh, who you're focused on, what makes you unique, and then we'll kind of dive into talking about some of the technology and the efficiencies that you all have created. Yeah, sure. So we've been around for quite some time, and I think that's the case with many advisors out there today. And one thing that you know we can illuminate on this and open it up if you want to, but this is really the first generation, uh, maybe one and a half generations have existed of, of wealth advisors. So this industry is still sort of in its first stage, and uh, it remains to be seen what will happen going forward, but we know there's a massive amount of consolidation. So uh, father and uncle are the founders of the firm. They started as sole practitioners back in the 80s. Originally, they were CPAs uh, by training. Uh, my uncle with the Internal Revenue Service, and he was investigating tax shelters and schemes, uh, many of which were prevalent in through the late 80s and early 90s. My father worked for the Big Eight, and they saw an opportunity to begin serving clients um, and helping them manage their money. And what happened was a lot of CPAs would review deals, particularly these tax shelter deals, and you know, all the numbers lined up and, and the tax credits looked great. But what they didn't understand generally was the underlying structure of the investment vehicle. So they pivoted and they started to practice as financial advisors uh, in a time when most advisors were still transaction-based. So they were, they were brokerage-based and they were earning commissions. That's how they made them. So they were, they were advisory um, and it probably took, I would call them pioneers because there weren't many people doing advisory business that had to have a significant amount of assets under management in order to make a living. So there was a ramp there. Um, not dissimilar to the challenge we face today for anybody who wants to be an independent advisor, you need a way to attract assets. Uh, so they started doing that in the mid 80s. Uh, we're celebrating 35 years in 2019. So that's a major accomplishment. But what really, I think, makes us different is the level at which we engage with our clients. And many firms talk about holistic wealth management, but what does that actually mean? Uh, that's something that we've embraced, and we've built the team to be able to deliver expertise and service at a higher level. So if we, I call it relationship intimacy. If we can understand our client at the deepest possible level, if we can be the first altering a difficult family time, whether it's a divorce or a death, uh, that is exactly where we want to be. So uh, we've gotten to the point now where we're selective in the clients that we take on, and we place a lot of emphasis on fit. And if we don't feel that we can provide value to the clients and that we embrace embrace a shared philosophy, then we don't have to do business. And that's led to uh, an incredible amount of stickiness and client retention. So. Our client retention has been about 99% uh, since the 80s. And many of our clients are 20, 25, 30-year clients. Yeah. So, uh, No, I think that I can relate to the, uh, the family business. I mean, your, your, your dad and uncle uh, took a little bit of a different route than, than my pops did. But uh, you know, one of our RA firms down here is 25 years. So I can relate, I think, on that level. It always makes it an interesting working dynamic. But it's a, if you make it work and you get it to do it the right way, then it, it's, a, it's a really fulfilling um, environment and culture. And so... Uh, and and I and I love that you know how how you guys have taken the firm going forward right in that approach and I think that you know some of the things 
uh, that it seems like you have been able to add is some of this technology innovation. And I think that that has been, seems to be a big push of yours since you took the helm of running the firm. Um, and so I'd love for you to just talk about why, what spurred you to really have the focus on technology and innovation uh, within the firm? What drove you to that point to, to really kind of create those adoptions and those efficiencies? Yeah, sure. Before we get into that question, I just think it's important to note that we look at things, we look at our business as the major service that we provide is lifecycle management. Many firms can provide asset management, which, you know, it's difficult enough to navigate portfolios through difficult market periods. But what's the ultimate challenge is helping somebody navigate the challenges of life. And that's what we do best. So what spurred us to make the investments and create the technology infrastructure that we created is we really wanted to, we had a desire to make change and create a firm that could endure for the next generation. And there are lots of things happening in our industry, consolidation, records, um, record amount of private capital. Um, and so in order to be prepared and continue to serve clients in the tradition which we have done for 30, for 30 years, we needed to make some change. And so when we sat down about five years ago, we thought technology was going to be a big piece of that. Moving from what was a traditionally sole practitioner model, my clients eat what you kill mentality to a true team, an ensemble of working professionals that have specific expertise in certain subjects and coordinating that so that we could deliver a higher level of value. And the technology is really allowed for that. So I think it's it's really about again going going from that sole practitioner mindset. And, and we know the industry is incredible. So there are thousands, tens of thousands of registered advisors out there. Many of them still run as sole practitioners. They have pretty small uh, books of business or assets under management, if you will. And yeah, how do you transition that to create continuity for the night, which is the most important thing? What, what is the mechanism to do that? For us, it was a technology infrastructure. It was democratizing the information that was maybe in your father's head, my father's head, my uncle's head, and allowing the team to understand who that client is, what their goals and dreams are, they are financially and what actions we need to take to continue to help them going forward, whether it's a transfer of wealth, whether it's preparing for a certain event, sale of a business, whatever that may be. And so, and, and that makes, I mean, I think that that is kind of the idea, um, you know, a, a well-said statement of what, how technology can help, right? I think that the, in the industry, there's so many people that talk about how Technology. They, they, some, some people are scared of technology. Uh, people are starting to become adopters of technology. But what technology should allow for and the approach that it seems that you had and the expectations you had were to allow technology to make you have better relationships as you're dealing with the life cycle of the individual client. And so, you know, I think that a challenge that people have, because I think people can relate and resonate with that and say, yeah, 
what Max was saying, I want to do. I think that that makes a lot of sense. I think a, a challenge is that you have a growing firm like you all have. How do you create the expectations to the team? Because technology evolution and technology adoption takes time, right? You know, five years ago, Absolutely. you all had this vision and you set the expectations, but you're going to implement it and it's not going to work, but then you're going to iterate it and you're going to figure it out. And so how do you, you know, how did you create that expectation with the team of saying, we're going to have this culture of learning, we're going to adopt the technology, and we're going to figure it out. How, how did you go about that? Yeah, so it took a lot of meetings and meetings after meetings. But what we did was we did a comprehensive business analysis and we said, what do we need in order to succeed going forward? Um, we could take that's one path is uh, my brother and I uh, could begin building our individual books and then we'd be yet another sole practitioner with a book of business. That's not what we wanted. Uh, so what we identified, yes, is what's the current capacity of the firm, right? The advisors that we have today, how many clients are they working with? And what are their capacity levels? So when I came into the business, the two lead partners were at max capacity. They were wearing many hats. They had to deal with compliance and regulation. They had to deal with cashiering, account opening, onboarding new clients. They had to deal with prospecting and closing new business. They had to deal with portfolio management and trading. They had to deal with financial planning. The list goes on. So that led to a situation where they actually didn't have, the partners didn't have the capacity to take on new business. And it was getting more and more difficult to develop that relationship intimacy with the current clients. So I think you'll, you'll see many advisors that you talk to today face this challenge, which is you've been incredibly successful in building up this great book of clients and you have these relationships, but they say, whoa, whoa stop. It, 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 I can't do any more at this point. I just need to focus on running what I have because I'm doing too many jobs. What also happens is that advisor that's wearing too many hats isn't able to truly specialize. So how deep can they go on the tax front? How deep can they go on the estate structuring side? How deep can they go on the portfolio management and asset allocation side of, of the business? It becomes more and more challenging. So when we stepped back and we saw what was going on from a capacity standpoint, we said, okay, let's pick or try to identify the biggest bottleneck and remove that. And the first one was pretty simple. It was, we didn't have a good central repository CRM or database to keep track of our clients' um, profiles and who they are as people and their goals and desires and where they are financially. So we spent about two years pulling all of the information that we could out of our advisors' heads and putting that into a centralized CRM system. So we started to feed this in. We started to build client profiles. And then as we began to build a team, anybody could view, let's say you were a client, Matt, anybody could view who Matt is and get a, a, a pretty quick understanding of what we need to do to help you and your family. So that was the first step. And then we sort of fell into the rest. But I think the most important thing is identify where you have the biggest bottleneck. And that's generally where a lot of time is going. And is that time well spent? 
Mm-hmm. And, and so, yeah, because I think that that's the, um, you know, the, the process that y'all took, right, is to say, let's identify the processes, let's identify what is our why, what is our goal as a firm, what is everything that we want to do, and then let's identify the processes, let's look at what they are, and then let's determine if this is the best process, who's doing what, and is there a way to automate it, and then you go and solve the technology, and I think, you know, that is a unique approach, right, because I think there's this idea, and I've heard many people call it the shiny ball effect, or whatever you want to say, where advisors just like, oh, there's cool technology over there, I'm going to go adopt that, there's cool technology over there, I'm going go adopt that. But they they understand their processes, but they haven't taken that time to really truly dig into the processes to determine how these technologies can solve specific issues or obstacles or create specific efficiencies within those processes, which is unique to you. And so, you know, the, the, I, uh, I commend you on that because I don't think that many people go out there and do that. And I think that that is the process, you know, identify what your goal is, identify the processes that you're currently doing, and then look at where the processes are working and aren't working. Where is the most time used? And let's try to shave off five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and then it starts adding up. Um, and so for, for you, now that you did that the right way, how are you judging success? How are you judging an ROI on what you've done? Are you looking at the time that it's saving? Are you tracking that? Are you looking at the ratio of clients to advisors? What is it that you think is the, the ROI for the, the two years that you spent doing that? So, Matt, I think you made a really good point. It's about those incremental gains because when we're talking about internal office efficiency, it's you're never going to get to where you want to go immediately. So if you can gain five minutes here, 10 minutes there, then that all starts to add up. And you have to be patient in that process. Measuring ROI is incredibly difficult. And I may be in the minority here because I've seen a lot of firms and actually a lot of product vendors, these technology products that you put into your technology stack that say, well, you know, we're able to generate 85% efficiency gains. Well, how are you actually measuring that? We're not necessarily a manufacturing business that has eight different uh, stages of production where we can have a machine that, that tells us exactly the time and the amount of widgets or units to produce to give us an efficiency measure. Uh, we took a more holistic approach to, to measuring ROI and we look at it in terms of time. So, okay, Matt, you were working with 100 clients. That's easy for us to see. But what are the demands for each of those clients? They're going to be different. So it's, we take a general outlook and, and, and say, okay, how do we feel capacity-wise? Do we feel that we're pressed for time? Or do we feel that we have plenty of time? And then we adjust accordingly. So I think it's it's a softer measure, but it's a nice way to look at it. Because if an advisor comes to me and, and says, look, I'm completely maxed out and they have 20 clients, then that's going to be very different from an advisor that comes to me and says, I have capacity and I have 150 clients. Mm-hmm. So it's really about understanding the time demands um, on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis of what an, what an advisor can handle to deliver the quality of service that the firm expects. Right. And so what have you seen? I mean, so you put in these efficiencies now and, you know, you're st- and, and I want to get into some of the technology that you continue to evolve on top of that, right? But but now you see these efficiencies. I mean, what 
what is the capacity, right? Right. So is it, you know, a hundred is capacity, was capacity. What have you seen on average across, you know, the multiple advisors where you're not, because you're right. It's all about delivering value to the end client. If we're not doing that, it doesn't matter how many people we have because it's going to have churn. And you all have a high retention rate at 99%, which is phenomenal. So what what have you been able to get that capacity to so that people that are listening to this can hear like, wow, that is, that's, that's monumental. Okay, so I'll share a few examples that I think are, are pretty powerful. Um, and it depends. Every firm, no two firms are the same. Um, they're different in how they think about uh, the services that they deliver and the value proposition that they have in their business structure. And so my general advice here is, okay, what are the things as an advisor that you're doing that you don't want to be doing? Can we take that off your plate? In our case, we work as an ensemble and we've hired in a number of advisors. And these new advisors that we've hired in We've taken onboarding and account opening off their plate. We've taken portfolio management and trading off their plate. We've taken bookkeeping off their plate. We've taken a number of service-related administrative functions off their plate so they have more time to spend with the end client. And I think most advisors will tell you, and I can't tell you how many times I've heard this, is, well, I used to spend 80 to 90% of my time with my clients, which I really enjoyed. Now, maybe I spend... 50 to 60% of my time with my clients and the rest trying to figure out how to get new technology uh, to work, how to deal with the new compliance and regulatory environment, which is challenging. And that's not what I want to be doing. So the way I think about it is what can we take off your plate as an advisor to make you more productive, to make you happier and allow you to do the work that you want to do. Um, so we have, we have an advisor in New York that, used to be a client. He was he and his family were clients for six years. They were retired and he wanted to go back to work. He used to be a commodities trader, so he was well well versed in, in our world. And right now his job is to act as a relationship manager and to go out and bring in new business. And it works incredibly well. He's able to leverage the team. So you can't really put a number on that. Uh, the result is client satisfaction. And the and another result is the ability for that advisor to bring in new business. And and so as you talk about, because I mean, we are in a quantit, I mean, we're in a quantitative type of world, right? Everybody's looking at numbers. And so um, as you look at with the other business partners and such, and you talk to them about, well, this guy feels, this guy or gal feels, you know, at capacity, but this person doesn't feel at capacity. How have you been able to shape those conversations with your leadership team uh, to help them understand it. I mean, uh, have you seen a reduction of not needing to hire more people because you still have a lot of capacity? I mean, are you starting to see that come to fruition within the firm? Absolutely. So, and maybe I'll provi- provide the example of Lucas and myself. So Lucas is my brother. He's our chief operating officer. We, I'm 30. And Lucas is 28, and we have been able to bring in new business to the firm, not because we have experience, not because we're seasoned veterans, because we're not, but because we've built a team of experts that can handle that type of client, whatever it may be. So bringing in that 10 or $15 million client and having that client be confident in, in what we're doing. So 
from an efficiency standpoint, you can you can read about this. They say 100 to 150 relationships per advisor, and that might be the number. Um, but the, the, the conversations that we had with the leadership team are around, okay, let's look at the clients that an advisor is responsible for, the revenue generated from that group of clients compared to what that advisor is being paid. Mm-hmm. And that is, that is sort of the, the ultimate metric to look at. If you have 150 clients that are paying you, uh, call it $200,000 of revenue, or you have 20 clients that are paying you $300,000 revenue, those are two separate cases and they need to be evaluated differently. But if somebody comes to us and they're a highly compensated advisor, yet revenue isn't at a certain point, then it doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. And so then we need to rethink how how the business is set up. Yeah. Well, and I think that that, yeah. And I, I, um, I think that that makes a lot of sense. I'm answering generally. Yeah, no. I'm answering generally because every, every case is unique. But I think what you say, I think that your points are great, right? Because it, you know, it is every firm is unique and every structure of, of firms. Some people are high volume. Some people are high touch. Some people are in the middle. Some people, you know, and every firm is unique. But what you're showing is that there is a way, no matter what size of your firm or what your kind of value prop is, to be able to go through the same process to create efficiencies and deliver value to your clients, but deliver efficiencies no matter what type of firm you're in. And I, you know, y'all have gone through the process of, you know, finding the technology, figuring out the process, adopting new technology, and you've also built some of your own technology as well. You know, to some people that are out there thinking about this because of the the ocean of options that are out there, um, what can you kind of uh, provide to them? Uh, or, or insight that you can have to them as they're starting the process of integrating technologies, right? Looking at all the technologies, integrating technologies, and going through that process that y'all started about five years ago. So what kind of advice can you give to those types of people? Okay, so I, I think I understand your question. Um, how do we start thinking about, as a firm, what technology makes sense to put on our platform or to use it internally? and we're always being barraged and bombarded by technology. The fintech space is booming, and it seems like there's a new technology. You've created one yourself, mm-hmm. uh, which is very impressive. Uh, there's always a new technology that might be interesting to try out. And I think what happens more frequently than not is the, the business, uh, when they're evaluating these things, they don't actually have a framework to evaluate the technology that they're going to integrate into their platform. And we can spend 10 years testing technology, but if we, if we don't make a commitment and understand exactly what our business needs and how a technology is going to help us to be more efficient, uh, deliver superior results, whatever the out- desired outcome is, if we don't spend that time and we don't integrate it properly, you're never going to get to where you want to go. So. Again, I think it comes back to starting with a business analysis. How are you working today? Identify the bottlenecks in your process. And then start with maybe maybe there needs to be some redesign. Uh, it's easy to go out and buy a technology. It's hard to make it work. And this is always underestimated. The capital commitment and the time commitment and the team buy-in, quite honestly, to make sure that everyone understands the direction and the end goal of 
implementing a technology. If you had to, if you had to put more emphasis on one or the other, right? Uh, the capital commitment or the time commitment, even for the f- technologies that are some of the most expensive technologies, right? What is bigger, the capital or the time in your mind to being successful at integrating technologies? Ooh, that's, that's a hairy question. I would say, <laughs> well, if, if you want to get into metrics, I think the actual time commitment ends up being a capital commitment. So what is your time worth? And who is, who is helping you to implement and integrate the technology? Is it an outside consultant? Do you hire a CTO? In our case, we started to build our integrated environment and we started selecting candidates for our technology stack. And then we said, oh, wow, okay. Um, we're paying a lot to these external consultants, but they're also working on 50 other businesses. So they don't really understand what we're trying to do. And so we ended up going out and finding somebody who could run the process internally for us that is dedicated to making sure that we are successful there. And, and I think that's huge. Uh, a, bil- a billion under management today, maybe it sounds like a lot for some folks. Uh, I think it's just enough from a scale standpoint to be able to reinvest in the business, to be able to, um, to, be able to implement technology and have uh, committed funding or committed capital because there's this nadir where maybe you're 200 to five, and, and there's no perfect information, you're 200 to 500 million under management, which many firms are, and you want to do these things, you want to create your own technology infrastructure, but you just don't have the available capital to be able to reinvest to do so. And in some cases, there might be a different solution for firms like that. Um, we've been fortunate that we have that scale to be able to, to do it ourselves and ta- tailor something to the way that we do business. Uh, so does that partially answer what? Yeah, no, what I think you're right. And I, and I agree with you. And I, I want to be cognizant of your time and, and the listener's time as well. And so uh, we're going to move into buy, sell here. Uh, but I, 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 I agree with you there. I, I think that it is a capital commitment. It is a time commitment. And you have to understand how much time you're going to have to put in or how much time you're going to have to empower one of your other employees to put in to adopt that technology. And what is their cost per hour? And that is a, uh, what is it? What is their value per hour? And that's what you're going to be giving up. But you also have to look at the back end of saying, okay, if I do this for a year and then it saves me for 10 more years of, of 15 minutes or 20 minutes a day, what is the value of that, right? And I think that the the, the biggest point that I, uh, I take away and that I would uh, put on top of that is uh, too many people just use the capital side of the equation and they focus on that side and they don't focus on the time side. And so they go and they, they're able to do so on the capital side and they make that investment, but then they don't make the investment in time and then they wonder why their money was spent on that technology and it's not working. Absolutely. And it's all a matter of you've got to, you, they've got to be together, right? You got to get a good capital deal, but you got to put the time in to make that work, that technology work. So I had a few notes on, on, on that subject, actually. I think it's easy to throw money at a problem, but it doesn't necessarily solve it. And that's something that I think all of the listeners should try to avoid. Even if you can write big checks, doesn't mean that you're going to get the result that you want. And it's easy to solve for the problem at hand. So if you've identified a capacity issue, okay, I'm going to bolt on a technology and maybe that will solve my problem. Probably not. And if you just do that, you probably end up running into another bottleneck down the road that could have been anticipated if you took the time at the beginning to map things out. 
Right. And that's something that we did. So we have this roadmap and it, you know, you have a, a roadmap is there for a reason. It doesn't necessarily mean you stick to, to each point and it's dynamic and it's always changing. Like somebody's financial, financial situation. Um, but take the time to map things out. I, I think um, I have a, an idea about technology without integration is like having all of the components of an airplane that work independently, but you can never actually fly it. Right. And right. the goal is, is to fly it, right? Yeah. And so that's, that's what we want to get to. Um, and, and most of the time when it comes to technology should actually be spent on implementing and integrating if you want to achieve these efficiencies. Not spending money on just amassing a collection of technology products internally, but spend the time and the money on implementation. Um, one thing we talk about internally a lot is data quality and structure. And that's something that's overlooked all the time. Our CTO, Lucas, they're out there speaking about this. We've done a number of events around this, but it's garbage in, garbage out. So you can buy a technology that purports to create this efficiency that you desire. They're going to sell to you and they know how to market to you. Um, but the quality of the inputs into that technology system directly correlates to the output or the end result. So again, we've spent an enormous amount of time organizing and cleaning our data so that we have confidence in the output and we can achieve that functionality. Yeah. I think that was just- Yeah, no, I, I, love, I love those points and I love the plain analogy. Um, so I'm gonna steal that from you if you're okay. Uh, you may not get any sure. royalty checks from it, but uh, I, 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 will, I will use that. Um, well, let's get into, uh, let's, get, let's move on into buy-sell. Buy-sell is my sure. kind of attempt to try to uh, bring in a flavor of financial advice that everybody can understand, buying and selling. So I'm gonna, we're gonna go through four topics. I'll tell them to, to you, you say buy if you agree, sell if you disagree. And you can give just a short explanation of why you're leaning one way or the other, and we'll see if you're bullish or bearish, or maybe just kind of flat road uh, going forward. Does that sound all right? Is there a hold? There is no hold. We're going to make you make a decision. The hold is the easy way out. So I wanted to make sure we didn't have any easy way out. I like that. Um, Sounds good. All right. So first one, buy or sell. Consolidation within the wealth management business is not a matter of if, but when. So I would say buy. Okay. This, this is buying and selling. It's M&A, um, which is very prevalent in our industry. Now, you couldn't monetize these businesses 10, 15 years ago. Now you can. And now there's capital behind it. So consolidation is here to stay. We had a record amount of deals. There are a number of deal reports out there in the fourth quarter of last year. I think there were over 160 deals, um, most of which were published, but there are lots of under the table deals too, direct deals that are being done. So we need to make sure that as a business, we're prepared for that consolidation and that we can deliver value. Great. I, uh, I, I'm leaning in your way. I, I see it happening right now as well. Buy or sell, the biggest hire for a financial advisory firm over the next five years will be one that y'all made recently, which would be a chief technology of, uh, officer. Bye. And that's a hard buy because if you desire to create efficiency internally and deliver superior results and maximize the technology that you've purchased and you've probably spent a lot of money purchasing, you need somebody to run it. Mm -hmm. 
I uh, 100% uh, 10 times over in agreement with you there. Uh, buy or sell. Financial advisors should budget for 10% of their budget, uh, of their operating budget, going towards technology and innovation development. At least 10%. At least. Okay. I like that. At least 10%. So it's different for every business. It's different if you look at how much revenue you have. You may be able to get away with less than 10%, but if you're a smaller firm, it might be higher than 10%. And there, you know, it, it depends on, again, what you want to do as a business. So I'm going to go, I'm going to just add in a, a slice of that, to, or just an added flavor to this buy sell. Uh, technology budget or marketing budget, which one in just a couple of words, which one's most important in your mind? Technology. And, and here's why. So the marketing budget, marketing in our business is very difficult. Again, we operate in a highly fragmented business. We have two other advisory firms in our building and we only have seven stories in this building. Um, so one sizable and, and one, one smaller firm. Uh, but where are the marketing dollars being directed? I'd much rather have more time in my day to go out and meet prospective clients than to run some sort of campaign. I love it. I love it. All right, last one. And this is something that we talked about a little bit and you kind of, uh, you, you went around it with some generality. So I'm going to go right at it with you. Buy or sell, the average client to advisor ratio will increase to 250 clients for every advisor in the next seven years. I, I buy that. I buy that. And I think if you, again, speaking in averages isn't the best way to look at it, but you have the advent of robo-advisors, which are going to drive that ratio way up. And then you have a number of firms that have sort of become through consolidation and maybe the clients aren't as demanding or require as much service. And so that each advisor then will have to deal or work with a lot more clients in order for the economics firm to work. Uh, and I agree with you. And I think, you know, I, I've read some numbers where the average was about 120, 125 to maybe 150 in the RIA space. So, you know, that's a, that's a quite a jump. Um, well, you're bullish. I can see you're bullish. That's great. I like talking with bulls. So I, I'll, I'll, I'll go with that. I'm going to give you 90 seconds, uh, you know, just to give the, the, the listeners and the, the, the advisors out there that are listening to this something that they could do tomorrow morning to create a technological efficiency in their firm that may not deliver the ROI right away, but will deliver an ROI into the future. Uh, and then after that, I'll give a closing thought and we'll, we'll wrap it up. Sure. So this is going to be a non-traditional answer. But I think the most powerful thing that a firm can do is redesign its processes and sub-processes because we know how those function, um, technology or not. If you can create a more efficient process, pick one thing. Is it account opening, data collection for financial planning, whatever it may be, and then train your employees in that process and hold them accountable, and you'll see huge efficiency gains. So, again, it comes to reducing those bottlenecks, and it might be just a question of reconfiguring your, your human capital. How are you incentivizing your employees? But if you can address those bottlenecks, you're going to have a huge win no matter what. And then it's if you if you're at the point where you want to or can into that redesign process, you're going to get a massive multiple on that. 
I love that. I love that. That is a hybrid of both, you know, just process management and technology innovation. So uh, I can appreciate that. And I'm going to take I'm going to take a few more seconds than my my allotted minutes. So uh, I will get the bill for that. Um, but I want to talk about ROI, ROI, return on investment. It's a foundational topic for anybody within the financial services space. And any leader tends to focus squarely on this with every spending decision. And for us, it's focused on with portfolio decisions as well. And there are many things in our business that are critical and becoming more critical for the future success of our firms, but that we have a very difficult putting a time putting an ROI number on. One of the main ones that comes to mind for me is marketing. This is a difficult line item to put a true ROI on. We basically run based on vanity metrics here. If we spend money on marketing, we expect to get more new meetings. If we are, then great. If we're not, then marketing is a waste. Very rarely do we take the time to understand the true attribution analysis of our marketing dollars and of our new referrals to see what is working and what isn't and to define what true working really is or means. Is it bad that we're paying $1,000 for a meeting via marketing? Maybe, maybe not. Does that client have a million dollars of investable assets? Will they generate more than $1,000 in revenue? How frequently do we close these deals? The ROI for marketing is usually looked at too deeply because it's not our foray and it takes a ton of time and it is unique to every firm. So there's no easy formula. But if we have a plan for marketing with clear goals and metrics, not just meetings, but a cost per meeting or something of that nature, then we begin to get a bit clear on a true ROI for marketing. The same is true for technology. Too often we just spend money on technology and want it to do X, Y, or Z or because we think a particular product is, quote, cool. And we usually make a tech decision with a singular focus as opposed to a firm-wide focus. This makes it hard for other departments in the firm to see why we made an investment in tech and thus creates much lower adoption. If you worry about new tech because of a lack of an ability to show an ROI, then we must be better at determining the holistic goal of the technology we are adopting and how we want it to impact our firm. Maybe workloads are high for our operations team, or maybe our turnaround time and paperwork is two weeks and we want it to be one. Having a very defined and specific metrics will allow for you to determine the value of the tech and the ROI on efficiency within your firm. It's not a shotgun approach. It's a rifle approach that will allow you to gain confidence in the money you spend on technology. To everyone out there that was listening, thank you for tuning in again to Bridging the Gap to Max Winthrop and Winthrop Wealth. Thank you so much for your insights. Uh, We appreciate it very much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Bridging the Gap. Don't forget to give us a rating and let us know what you think. 